this little group of uh, followers of the way are living in a Roman outpost where if you have a lot of soldiers uh, and then they get too old to fight, you've got to put them somewhere. And so they would just make outposts uh, where, they, where they put lots of veterans and they were great because they would like hold, they were great citizens for the Roman Empire because they'd, you know, given so much to the Roman Empire and now we're kind of living in these like cushy places getting looked after really well. But if there's any like, if you need to like settle somewhere, you know, because yay, colonization, um, you put all the veterans there and they don't actually have to like kind of work for you anymore, but they'll kind of like squash any uprisings if the local riffraff start getting a bit heated. So Philippi was one of those spots, a long way from Rome, um, you know, a fairly long way from Jerusalem for uh, those who were followers of the way. Uh, and then last week, Rod talked a little bit about Paul, Saul Paul, uh, who, yeah, uh, lots of people in our community have a problematic history with because of some of the ways that Paul has been used and for some of the ways that Paul is. Um, I read through Philippians when we started talking about the series, and the thing that always stands out to me with the kind of epistles and particular Pauline ones is just He's so intense. Like, everything is just, like, ratcheted up to 11. And I find it really, really confronting as someone who uh, kind of grew up in all kinds of church spaces, but, you know, spent a fair amount of time in kind of Pentecostal revivalism slash Puritanism slash all, like, you know, revival-seeking-y kind of stuff, which is, like, unbelievably emotionally intense. Like, you just use all of your life's emotions in those two years before you burn out. Uh, <laughs> most of it, like, it's just self-flagellating for, you know, how terrible a person you are. Um, I come to something like Philippians, and I'm just like, oh, just tone it down a bit. Um, but it's actually really helpful, and what Rod took us through last week, it's actually really helpful just thinking about the kind of person Paul is. And I have this grand theory that I rabbit on a lot about, about that we all theologize our personalities and that there's nothing wrong with theologizing your personality as long as you understand that you have one theology and one personality amongst many other legitimate ones. Uh, but that's never how it comes across from people who hold the microphone. And so uh, all of us kind of just, and, and particularly people in power kind of describe God um, and just and see Jesus through a particular lens and filter of their personality and then make that the benchmark for what spirituality is. So if you're into, you know, the prophetic and this and that, then, you know, then that's what the Bible is all about and that's what God's about and that's what everyone should be doing. And if you're kind of like contemplative, then, you know, that becomes the thing that everyone should be doing. And, and all of us kind of do it, um, except if we haven't had permission to do it for ourselves, but have just had to, like, you know, do what people tell us to do. Um, and Paul very much does that. Um, Paul is an intense guy with an intense past, living in an intense time, with, an intense, with intense things happening to him, looking forward to a very in, imminent and intense future. No wonder if, like Paul, you've studied to within an inch of your life, used to have people rounded up and killed for their theology had a mystical experience with a divine being in which you were struck blind and met someone who'd already died and told you to stop beating up his followers, changed your life and now started a new fight with your old crew by trying to include outsiders without following the proper, proper protocol, 
had your old crew try and kill you <laughs> multiple times and only just escaped and then were dragged before your imperial overlords, submitted to various high-stakes trials, were beaten and imprisoned for long stretches and terrible prisons, were stressed as all hell for the foundling communities of Jesus' followers who had made themselves socially vulnerable and were at risk of the wrath of the state and who were being visited by your old crew when you weren't there who were trying to tell them to chop bits of the genitals off. And to top it all off, you were convinced that Jesus, the dude from your mystical experience, was going to return any day now, end time in history as we know it, bring down the empires and judge them and recreate the entire universe into a different order it might make an already intense guy come across that little bit more intense. Like if you're writing from prison to a community like Philippi who are incredibly vulnerable and you're li- you might get executed, you might not, and your old crew's visiting them, trying to tell them that they're not following the way right, and you need them to get it right because you need this message to get out before Jesus comes back, which Paul believed. I don't know, how many of you, did any of you grow up in a, an environment where you believed that the end of time was like within 10 years? Yeah. That kind of ratchets up the stakes, right? Like at one point, our family like actually bought lots of canned food <laughs> and water to get ready for the coming apocalypse. Like the intensity that, that living under that pressure does ratchets things up. So you read, a, you read a letter like Philippians, and no wonder the language is so extreme and everything's so intense, and Paul is such an intense guy. And I guess I just wanted to say, for starters, it's okay if you, if you find that confronting. And like, if you're like, for those of you who can open their Bibles again, which isn't certainly isn't anyone or even the majority. But if you open your Bibles and receive this invitation to read Philippians and crack it open with your morning coffee and just like, holy shit, that's a bit much. Like, that's, like, that's okay. <laughs> like, that, that's, that's all right. Because you aren't Paul and you're not living in Paul's time. And that doesn't mean that there's, we've got nothing to learn from Paul. But it just means that we don't need to take Paul as the benchmark of what all spirituality should be and feel bad that we're not exactly the same. So there's a a middle ground there. Uh, The second thing I just wanted to say, because I I got to do my favorite bit of Philippians, because one of my favorite bits of the Bible is in here, um, which is this beautiful ancient Christ poem, and probably maybe the first, or the earliest, like, hymn, about Jesus that we have, um, which is pretty cool. I got to read this, do this bit, um, and I'm going to read through it in a second, but the context of this guess I wanted to give is uh, that this is a letter about community uh, formation, not about personal transformation. Um, this is a letter. There will be personal transformation which will should will and should come from a letter like this to the community in Philippi, but it's not primarily about pe- this kind of random group of people who are coming together for a service and then go off and never talk to each other again, um, like some kind of like you know personal betterment retreat where we learn how to be less angry or how to shout our anger into a pillow or you know like it's not it's not like a weekend session where we become. We create super intense bonds with this random strangers 
and then go through some radical personal transformation and then go away and like never have to worry about the fact that they're actually useless at the dishes and they don't care about cleaning up around the house and they're a bit of a dick when they're tired. Like, this is about a community that's in an incredibly vulnerable place that have to make life work together, otherwise they've got no real chance of following Jesus. So there's not another church up the road where if they all, like, hate each other and they're just kind of dicks, that they can just go, fine, well, I'm going to that one, and then, like, well, I'm leaving, and I'm, you know. This whole letter is all about how does a community not destroy itself? Um, the end goal is a community of radical equality. This little passage in 1 John, um, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is perfected in us. It's the sense that, I mean, Paul's a mystic, so he's into mystical experiences, um, but at the same time, like in other threads of the epistles, there's this sense in which mystical experiences kind of come and go, but where you really find God is in the stranger, in the other, in the oppressed, um, and in those people that sit next to you in your community, Christian community, and really irritate you, and you have to like sort your attitude out. Like that's, yeah, yeah. I know you. I know, we all know who they are. I don't look at them all at once. Okay. But John, like the, the Johnning community, is saying, this is what, this is where God is found, when you can love someone that you just don't have to. That's where we practice what it is to love our enemies. So Christian communities in that sense are these kind of like training grounds of being around irritating people and committing to them in ways that you don't have to um, and being mutually obligated with people that aren't your kinship family because that was huge back then. The only way you survived in a network, with, in, a, in a society with no social structures. If you fell out, you know, if your husband divorced you and you're a woman, then there's a good chance you just have to become a prostitute or a sex worker because that's the only option you've got. You're, there's no fallback. So Christian communities with this weird thing, like one of the first kind of examples of, in the kind of um, Greco-Roman world of non-familial family relation households that actually owed each other something even though there's no advantage to them. Like, it's, it's a wild and um, heretical idea back then, because for reasons I've explained in the past and won't explain today, that to, to care for someone who can't give you anything is to go against the order that, order that the gods have set. So Paul's trying to, like, get this, like, little community in Philippi just to hang together, um, to not chop bits of the genitals off when they don't need to, um, and to just be kind of love one another enough that they don't disperse um, so that there might be some, like, way of following Jesus under incredible pressure. Um, so his main concerns are to stop bullies pushing them into legalism, keeping the communities alive in the face of the religion of empire, um, and how to stop them falling apart through infighting and jostling for positions. 
Um, so we're going to look really briefly at a couple of passages today, and I want you to do most of the work. So I'm going to read the, pa- the first passage and tell you a little bit about it, and then um, the next one I want to hear a little bit from you. So the first one is uh, Philippians 1, verse 27 to 28a. Thanks, Dan. Um, Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I can come and see you again um, or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and in no way frightened by those opposing you. So this is kind of the prelude to the next bit. Um, And the prelude is essentially saying, like, you're going to need to hang together or you're going to fall apart. And it's different than saying, um, this is my church, and you will all be like me. (laughs) This is effectively saying, this is Jesus' church, and the only way you're going to hang together is if you can keep remembering who Jesus is and living like that. Otherwise, some people are going to convince you that you need to mutually genitally mutilate um, the um, non-Jews. And others of you are going to try and snatch power off everyone else and tell them what to do um, and take over because you're used to being high society and people listening to you. Because remember, this is a society, this is a community of slaves and masters, right? This is a community of people, of some people who like 80% of the population are slaves and have no rights, Um, and 20% of masters who are used to being masters and being overlords of everything. So when they gather together, they're just used to being in charge. And this idea that a slave is A, human, and then B, your sibling, is just like radically difficult when you've spent your entire life like tinkling a bell um, and telling who who gets to do what. So the next section um, in Philippians 2 it's about how do we live together in a way that practices the love of Jesus. And so Paul kind of does a little bit of rambling about this stuff and then kind of like throws in the middle of it the song, um, which, is an, which um, could have been a poem, could have been a song, most likely a song that they would have sung together as a kind of like central hanging together of like, I know that some of you are fighting with each other. I know some of you are jostling, jostling for power. I know some of you are feeling vulnerable. So I'm going to put this song in the middle and say... If you can be like Jesus in this way, you've actually got a chance. So do we have any... Um, I know it's quite small because I want to fit it all in together, but I've got a bigger version of it next slide in a second. But um, do, is, can anyone, A, read that, and B, not be too traumatized to read this passage, despite how long it is? Thanks, Jane. Lucky I sat near the front. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, regarding others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Motherly Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work on your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's hard to explain how different this is than Greco-Roman society, (laughs) where charity in the way that we would see it, was like deemed an abomination to the gods and incredibly disloyal to the empire because the way the honor system worked, giving to someone who can't give back to you is trying to change someone's status, which the gods has set, so don't do it. (laughs) Um, The idea of helping someone that can't help you back or looking out for anything other than your own interests is actually against the empire and against the households and against God. So this is like profoundly radical. Like this sounds just kind of like, yeah, boring, nice to us. Because it's kind of like we, we live in, you know, post-Christendom Western society. We kind of used to these things kind of being massaged into the culture that even if we don't do them, they're kind of seen as some kind of good ideal of like just being nice. Um, but to these first hearers, this is like, this is shocking, like shocking, shocking. Um, I just want to flick over to this question here of, and we're going to look at the Christ poem again in a second, in particular. But these are the two questions I want to just chat about for for a moment. How might this be lived well in a community, modeling ourselves against the Jesus described here? And how might it be lived badly? Or how might it be applied well? And how might it be applied badly in a community? Because this passage... Oh, I had a good version of it. Oh, there you go. Um, This passage here is kind of like Paul setting a template for how to live. Uh, And as the church, we've lived with it long enough that we've worked out um, how to do really bad versions of it (laughs) and abusive ones and some ways of doing really beautiful and good versions of it. So I want you to sit with that for a moment and think about like, in a community like this, or like the ancient one that it was written to originally, how are some ways in which this could be applied practically and lived and followed out, which are really healthy and beautiful and good and you think represent Jesus? And how are some ways in which this could be applied in ways that actually just reinforce really terrible things? Um, the bit that stood out to me was that he emptied himself, um, but then he, he didn't stay empty. He... Uh, I suppose, got filled up later on down in verse 9, but the emptying of yourself for the community can be good, like this, or it can be um, not so good. And especially if you encourage others to empty themselves, even more more troubling. In this case, I guess it ends well, though. Yeah, so the kind of the Greek behind that is kenosis, this idea of self-emptying, of like making space for something else, like pouring your life out. And to what you say, like, yeah, the interesting thing is that he wasn't emptied by someone. (laughs) There's like a sense of like efficacy and like this was something that Jesus 
did of Jesus' own volition rather than through coercion so that someone else could fill that space for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, good insight. Yeah. Any other? I struggle with um, the ideal of this in a Christian community versus these guys are all, as you said, living in a community with values that are almost the opposite to this. Um, and how you juggle that if you have a dispute with someone. Um, I'm having difficulty even expressing what I want to say, Shane. Um, but the emptying of self within a safe community and how how we might apply uh, this teaching in the broader community um, and what that means. At what point do you say, I've done everything that I can and at this point I need to protect myself rather than open myself to more abuse? Mm. Yes, yes, yes. We have a visiting minister this morning. Um, I think the the humblings oneself like is good for a master to hear, but I question how helpful that is for a slave. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that gets missed when we share this is that we miss the power dynamics and the power dynamics that are embedded in this. So think about the logistics of this. So within the, so Greco-Roman society is an honor-shame culture um, and there's a really, really high, like it's a status culture. So it's a really, really clearly delineated status line of who is in charge of who, who gets to tell who what to do, who holds the power, who doesn't, and the consequences of that are just immense. And, and so much so that you know, a master can kill a slave and face no consequences because they're not really human. Um, and also, you know, say, like, you are marrying you, cool, that's a family unit within my family unit, done, uh, that's all good. I mean, I think these things are just hilarious when he's talking about biblical marriage and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> anyway, I won't get, in, I won't get into that. Um, but what this poem's doing is saying the most powerful thing you can think of, the highest status thing you can think of, the highest status one personhood you can think of, emptied themselves and made themselves the lowest of the low so that life could come forth. And what I'd argue from this is that that kenosis doesn't and can't be applied equally in a community with status lines. So Paul dragging this out, Paul doesn't need to tell slaves, humble yourself and don't look after your own interests when your entire life is just doing what you're told and looking after the interests of others. But let's not kind of homogenize slavery either because like 80% of the population is slaves. There's huge hierarchies in slaves as well. And so many slaves chose not to become free people 
because they're actually better off, they have a better place in their household being a high rank, highly ranked slave, and they have a lot of power, and they know how to use that power as well. So what happens when we wheel this out usually is the person who holds the power in a community saying, what you need to do is humble yourselves and empty yourselves and pour it out for my thing so that we all get it done. <laughs> but this is not what this is doing. This passage is taking the, the message first, <laughs> kind of like it's the trickle-down effect of humility. <laughs> the first salvo, the first load, the weight is, is firmly centered about those of you who already hold power, who think you are close to Christ. <laughs> you are the ones who have the most to lose and need to work out what it looks like to lo- live. You live in a society where everything is engineered to you, towards your interests. Think not about your interests. Because the people at the bottom, their interest is survival, and that's all of God. So we don't need to tell them to empty themselves because they've got nothing to empty. They're empty. We actually need to work out how to fill them up and how to give them a voice and create some kind of community of equality. And again, these letters were read out, not us all at home with our Bibles. These letters are read out in a community of people. So someone would read the letter, because most of them couldn't read. Someone would read the letter to the entire community and the people (laughs) who are in power would have been the first to blush here because it's obvious who holds the power and who this is directed at. So, yeah, for both, yeah, for both Jenna and Tish, I could think, like, yeah, you're really on to something there in saying that to try and apply this equally is not equality. Yeah. Any more healthy, bad... I think that a similar comment, but it's it's often used to tell people how to be obedient to power rather than power to speak to itself. You know, the idea of being obedient to death and if you're like Jesus, then you will be obedient. And it brings to mind a really clear memory I have many years ago of being at a very large influential church where I was invited to kind of a leaders type meeting and there was a, an international speaker who came to basically tell leaders how to not worry too much about the people who are volunteering for them because that's what they were called to do and, you know, don't worry too much about asking people for that. And the, the leader of the church got up and said, oh, it made me feel really relieved because I always worry about having to thank everyone all the time and now I realise I don't have to thank people so much because that's just what God's brought them to do and I was horrified um, but, but that's what they took from it was, oh, good, now we, we're relieved. We don't have to worry about looking after them because that's, that, yeah, that's what they have to do to be like Jesus. So all good, we'll just carry on. Um, but that's what it makes me think of is how this is used to, to control and coerce people. And, and that is literally the religion of the Greco-Roman Empire. Like that's the whole thing. Like Caesar is God. Like the term son of God isn't a Christian saying first. It's a Greco-Roman one. Caesar is the son of God. He is the saviour. He's the Messiah. He's the light of the world. Like, they're all Caesar terms, which have been cheekily stolen and applied to someone who got put to death on a cross by Caesar, by the state. And so they're inversions of power. And so, yeah, like, like what you're describing is people who think they're describing Christianity, but are actually describing the exact thing which it was written against. 
which is an irony that we lose when we don't have any understanding of the ancient world. Yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, beautiful. Any others? A half-hearted. It just strikes me that the when we look at the very last line, to the glory of God, the motherly father, that all of it's done for a very clear and deliberate purpose. And I feel like to the degree that 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 you trust your community and trust that everyone is actually oriented towards that, then this feels like a very empowering and and um, powerful thing to do. But as we know, when religious structures, you know, when the human dynamic comes in and there's mixed purposes at play, then we start doing things for different reasons and, and it becomes hard to tell exactly what is this all for in the end. Absolutely. And I love that you picked up on that last line too of like the glory of God. I mean, I, this is the NRSV translation, so I put motherly in there to make it feel more like a community. But um, uh, I love it. So the glory of God, we often go, the glory of God is this thing which is power over this great, unbearably strong power. Um, and all of this stuff is feeding that power structure to, so we can come on. So like we're all supposed to be humble and then God is amazing and strong and powerful and his glory is just like so amazing. You can't even look at it. But this poem is doing exactly the opposite. It's like when you want to know what the glory of God looks like, when you know what every tongue should confess, it's that the glory of God is the one that held God's status, gave it up for humanity because everyone is the beloved. That is the glory you should think of when you think of the glory of God. Not the Old Testament tabernacle, if you go in, you'll die, glory of God. And that's a bit of a butchering because I could talk a bit more about that, but don't have time today. But when you think of the glory of God, think of Jesus. When you think of Jesus, think of the one who gave up Godhood. God elevated the self-giving love. That self-giving love is what the glory of God is. And so if you want to know what it is to be godly, work out how to love the unlovable, how to be willing to give over your power for the powerless, how to let the powerless take up power, and take up dignity, and take up self-efficacy, and have a place of equality. So it's not like we all just lower ourselves down to the level of scum, but it's actually that we create containers for people to have a voice, to live safely, to have their needs met. Um, that is the glory of God that we talk about. And that's what I love about this poem, is the subversion in it just runs right through to the end, where... The pinnacle of everything is when the powerful give over power for the humanity of others. And I think it's a profound challenge. We're going to have communion now. But I just wanted to close with just one thing about our community. Because I think, like, the fear for me about our community is not that we aren't willing to give up power and that we aren't willing to bear with each other. It's that we're actually not close enough and present enough to each other that we bother fighting anymore. 
So if you read old school marriage books, there's lots of bad advice, but one of the good bits of advice in them is the death knell of the marriages of a marriage is when you stop fighting because you just can't be bothered anymore. Like everyone thinks that like arguing is the bad thing. Arguing is not the bad thing. Stopping arguing when you just don't care enough about the thing and you've got you run out of energy to save it. Like that's when you should be really worried about your relationship. Um, and sometimes I think about that about this community. Like it's a very fluid community. We're all managing our own trauma. We all need space away and space here unless you get paid, which you have to be here. Um, but I guess my fear is that in terms of carrying each other's lives and knowing what's happening for each other and being able to care for each other is that we actually don't dwell closely enough together <laughs> to actually get, have to work through what it's like to actually have an argument. Um, and I think, yeah, that's a, that's a challenge for us. Yeah. Anyway, I'll let you sit with that. Um, we are having communion now. Um, and... The way we do this as a community, it's an open table. Anyone is more than welcome to participate or not. Um, we believe that Jesus welcomes all. And we take some juice and a bit of cracker and hold it together until everyone who wants some has some. Uh, and, so, and then we eat and drink together at the end to remember this, the self-emptying love of God. Um, yeah. So if you want to take part in communion this morning, feel free to um, grab some of the elements and then gather around in a loose-ish circle. Um, if you don't wish to participate, that's totally fine too. So I'll give you a couple of moments to work that out. Loving God, you poured out your life, not so that God could love us, but so that we could see what love looked like and learn to love you and each other. Help us this week to um, know where we have power to hand over so that the humanity of others can spring forth and to know where actually it's our humanity that needs to spring forth um, and to not become victims to the powerful. Give us wisdom and discernment and kindness. Help us to remember that your glory is pouring out your life in love. Amen. Let's eat and drink together.